Uh, one thing I learned at a very young age was how to read a road map. So before the days of GPS, anywhere that you went, you had to read a map. So just by looking around, most people in this room probably knew how to read a map at some point. And so it was partly out of necessity as a young child, because in order to sit in the front seat with my mom, you had to be the navigator. And that came with privileges, because one, you get to sit in the front seat over the other children. And the other privilege was you get control of the radio if you're the navigator. And so for those two reasons, me and my brother would always try to be the navigator. Uh, my sister didn't really care about reading maps, and so it was between me and my brother. Uh, he was older than me, and so he was kind enough to show me how to read maps. My brother and my mom would, would show me how to read maps. Uh, they showed me how to look at the, the key and to know what a road is and uh, a river is, a railroad tracks, all those types of things that you need to know with a map. And so when I began the fourth grade, I was really excited because there was a challenge called Blackbeard's, Blackbeard's Treasure Map Challenge. And so in this challenge, uh, every week you, would, you were given a map for the whole semester, and every week you'd have to get to a new destination. Ultimately, you'd get to the final destination, and whoever got there first throughout the semester would end up winning the race. And so each week you'd get pulled to the back of the room, and you'd have to give the teacher uh, your answer on, on where, you, where you got to that week, how many miles it took to get there, and the route you took, so that you had to take the best route, you had to give the miles accurately. And so I was excited because I thought, well, I can win this competition. There was another student, Nathan Rinaldi, who would later become a really good friend of mine, but he would win at every academic challenge, whether it was spelling or math or English, the sciences. He seemed to win every academic challenge, and I thought, well, this challenge I'm going to win because I at least know how to read a map. And so every week we get pulled to the back of the class one by one and we give our answer on the map. And me and Nathan were just head to head week after week. We both get it right. And if, if you got it wrong, you had to stay at the previous location. You got correct. And so other people were weeks behind and me and Nathan are just week after week getting it right. We're calculating the miles correctly between the two red arrows. Uh, we're looking at the roads, taking the best routes, doing all this stuff, reading our map to where at the end of the semester we were just, we were weeks and months ahead of some of the other students because we knew how to read a map. And so uh, th this was a great challenge. It, it was helpful as a student. Um, but it, it's what biblical theology is, in a sense, right? If we look at the Bible like a map, we need to understand it. We need to understand that it's getting to a destination. It's getting to a location. And if we don't know how to read it properly, we're not going to know what to do with it, and we're going to get lost along the way. And that's what happens for a lot of people, right? They start in Genesis. They try to read the Bible in a year, maybe. Maybe they get stuck in Leviticus, that happens quite often. They get stuck in Leviticus, they don't know what to do with it, and they get lost along the way, kind of like the other students. The other students, they didn't know the difference between a road and a river, or a railroad track and a road. And so they're getting lost along the way constantly. And it's the same way with the Bible. A lot of us get lost along the way because we don't know how to read it properly. And so biblical theology is one of those tools that helps us to read the roadmap. It helps us to get to the proper destination. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about those themes uh, and what is that proper destination with the Bible, and doing that through biblical theology. And so the next six weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at, is biblical theology, Lord willing. And so uh, tonight, what I want to do is kind of give an overview and an introduction into it, and then we'll dive into the Bible the next five weeks, uh, and I'll show you by the end how we're going to break that up. Uh, but what I want to do tonight is I want to give a definition of biblical theology, uh, what it is, and in comparison to the other disciplines of theology, uh, talk about why it's important. How the Bible views Scripture. That's what's important to biblical theology is how do the biblical authors view Scripture? How does the Bible view itself? What's the main purpose of it? All those types of things are important to biblical theology. And then we'll go over some of the tools of biblical theology. 
So I do want it to be interactive at times, so if I ask questions, they're not always rhetorical. Sometimes I'll be silent until I get an answer. Uh, so the first question I do want to ask is, as we dive into theology, give me a basic definition of what theology is, someone please. The study of God, right? Biology, study of life, right? Bio, life, ology, the study, right? So the study of God is, in its essence, that's exactly what theology is. Uh, earlier, a couple days ago, this week at work, uh, I was talking to a coworker in my office, and uh, he had had some chain of events happen at work where I, I think he was treated a little bit unfairly, and, and he was kind of discouraged about it, and he's kind of telling me what happened and everything. And at the end of the conversation, he tells me, well, all things happen for a reason, and me and him have talked a lot about things such as this. I've been able to share the gospel with him many times. Uh, he's not a believer. And he doesn't respond to the gospel uh, in repentance and faith yet. And uh, so I kind of smile when he says that all things work out for a reason. I say, yeah, that, that's true. I said, that's because there's a sovereign God who stands above all things. And so he smiles back at me. And he says, yeah, sovereign God, it, her, the universe. So he starts giving me all these, these terms that he would say relating to God. He's doing theology, the study of God, right? That's his understanding of God. It's all false. He's doing poor theology. But the truth is we all do theology. Some people, they don't like theology. They don't like doctrine, but they're doing theology whether they know it or not. It's just a matter of are they doing it in accordance to truth, which is revealed to us through God's word, or are they doing it according to their own thoughts and things such as that, like my coworker, my friend, right? He's coming up with his own theology of God. It's completely false, and he's rejecting God's truth as I teach the word to him. And so all of us do it, and so even Christians, some of us have a poor theology, and some Christians don't think that they care about theology, but again, they have a theology, so what I want to talk about is, is three of the main disciplines of theology. There are some more, but the, the most prominent ones, the first one, systematic theology. This is the one that probably most of us are familiar with. Systematic theology is really the, the study of, of topics, in a sense. What you would do is you'd pick up a biblical doctrine, and you'd say, what does the Bible teach us today about this topic? So sin. We could look at sin, and we could say, what does the whole Bible teach us about sin? And you start taking up scriptures and texts that would teach us about sin, and then you come up with your conclusions, right? So you can use biblical theology, and you should, in aiding your systematic theology, but ultimately they're separate disciplines where it's much more topical, um, and, and, and that's a good thing, right? We can, we can talk about baptism as Baptists, and we say, what does the Bible teach us about baptism? Why would we call ourselves Baptists? And we can pick up that topic. Uh, historical theology. Historical theology is the study of how Christians at different points in time have understood various theological topics. So as part of our study of church history in the last six or seven weeks, we've also taken up a little bit of historical theology. As we've talked about these different church figures, we've talked about what they've believed. Why did they believe those things? And so church history uh, is, it helps us, in, in church, and historical theology helps us in interacting with theological topics and debates that have happened throughout church history, right? We've had 2,000 years of Christian history, and we can look to the saints before us to aid us in interpreting the Bible. And so historical theology really helps us, and hopefully you saw that in our study the last weeks, is that it helps us in developing our own theology as we see how they did it, how they struggled along the way, how they interacted with heretics and other believers along the way. So we can learn from historical theology. And then biblical theology 
Biblical theology is a little more difficult to give a definition of, and just by studying it, you can see people give various definitions. Um, One of the seminary professors said he was walking around one day on campus, and uh, he met this student that looked really troubled. He just seemed to be deep in thought and trouble, and he asked him, what's what's wrong? Are you okay? He said, "I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what biblical theology is. We keep talking about it, and I just don't understand it. In some ways, I felt that way after studying different works. I'm thinking, I, don't, I think I'm right where I started. I don't really have a better definition than I did when I even started. Um, but I think uh, Peter Gentry and Steve Wellm give a very helpful, brief definition in their Kingdom Through Covenant, uh, which was a very helpful work in, in studying biblical theology. But they say that it's an, an attempt to unpack the redemptive historical unfolding of Scripture. So again, the redemptive historical unfolding of Scripture. So the, the reality that the, the, the Scriptures are unfolding and, and it's expressing God's redemptive history. And then they go on to say that biblical theology must follow a method that reads the Bible in its own terms, following the Bible's own internal contours and shapes in order to discover God's unified plan as it is disclosed to us over time. So it's looking at the plot, the narrative, the overarching themes of Scripture as you're doing that. And so biblical theology can trace themes and the structure of the Bible so that you can understand the message of the Bible. So rather systematic theology is just picking up some topics here and there, picking up doctrines until you can define what you believe as a, as a Christian. Biblical theology is, is taking the whole narrative of Scripture or narrative of a, book, of a book and interacting with its purpose. Why did the author write these things and how does this fit into historical redemptive history? Another uh, writer uh, in the Nine Marks series gave a helpful understanding of biblical theology. They say that it's a reading, it's a way of reading the Bible as one story by one divine author that culminates in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, so that every part of Scripture is understood in relation to him. So what I like about their definition is they're pointing to the fact that all Scripture, all of redemptive history as it unfolds is pointing to Christ. And so they're, point, they're pointing to this reality that, that everything that was written of old is pointing, is looking forward to that day of, of Christ. And we'll see that as we look through a couple texts this evening. But ultimately, biblical theology really immerses us in the world of Scripture. It immerses us in the thoughts of the biblical author, what the purpose of their writing is, uh, and really trying to, th- to make those connecting points of Scripture. It really ties everything together uh, if we're doing it properly. So why is it important? Well, it's important because we don't naturally see things rightly. We just don't. By, by nature, we don't. With our sin natures, we naturally think wrongly about the world, about God's word. So we need God's revelation to inform us, ultimately. When I was young, my, my grandparents lived near the Bay Area, near San Francisco. We lived in California, and so we would visit our grandparents quite often. And a lot of times we'd go into the city, into San Francisco, and do little things and activities, and uh, we'd have a good time there. And so we'd take the ferry. Every once in a while we would drive into the city. We'd, we'd rough the traffic. Uh, if anyone's ever been there, you know what that's like. And so sometimes we'd rough it, and we'd, we'd drive into the city. And one time my mom wanted to treat us and drive across the Golden Gate Bridge. Because in order to drive across the Golden Gate Bridge, it was a little more out of the way. You had to pay more because there's tolls on every bridge. And, of course, they can get more money off the Golden Gate Bridge. And so we'd have to take the toll. And so my mom took the time to drive us out of the way and pay the toll. I was probably 10 years old. And I remember just kind of looking up from the back seat and seeing the Golden Gate Bridge. And quite honestly, I was very unimpressed. I look up, and first off, it's red. So I'm thinking to myself as a 10-year-old, why is the Golden Gate Bridge red? 
It, it really didn't make sense. So first off, it, just getting over that in and of itself was very difficult for me. I, I, even now, I don't know if I've gotten over that, but it is red. And so we're driving, and as I'm looking around, I'm thinking, I don't know why this is so impressive to people. We just now wasted more time than I could have had having fun in San Francisco. We've now wasted more of my mom's money to drive across this bridge, and it's not very impressive, I thought. Well, 12 years later, uh, I had the opportunity to be a firefighter in California, and I worked on a helicopter crew for a little bit, and there was a fire in Mount Mount Tamapias, which is just north of San Francisco. And so we're, we're making our way over there, and it's, it's probably like 6 o'clock in the evening. And what happens, if you're familiar with the, the Bay Area and, and that climate, is as the hot air kind of heats up all day on the land, it, it rises and, and the marine air comes in from the sea. So you get this big, cool air mass that comes into the land. And so basically you get this big, dense patch of fog that moves in every day just about uh, during the summertime in the Bay Area. And so as we're, we're flying across, uh, we're, we're, we start to see the Golden Gate Bridge. And this beautiful fog layer's coming in. You can see Alcatraz. You can see the bridge. And here I am about 12 years later than when I was 10 years old. And I thought it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. Honestly, I still remember it today. Just seeing the bridge and the beauty of it from the air. And that's what biblical theology should do for us. Sometimes we struggle with the text. And we need biblical theology to cause us to take a step back. And to make those connecting points. And to see the scripture in its beauty. To see it the way it was meant to be seen. And to cause us to be in awe of it. And so, just like me as a young kid, I wasn't thinking rightly as I saw the bridge. I didn't have the right perspective on it. And that's what I hope to do with biblical theology, is hopefully give you a perspective of the Bible that would cause you to see that grand narrative, the beauty of the message of it, and to step back like I did with the Golden Gate Bridge and see it anew, see it afresh, the way it was meant to be seen. So why is it important? One of the things is that it helps to clarify the main purpose, right? As I've been talking about the narrative. We're going to talk about that a lot throughout the study. The main purpose of the Bible so that we don't miss that main purpose. A lot of Christians, they know their Bibles well. They have a lot of, a lot of verses memorized. They know where to turn in the Bible to things. But they don't necessarily know how to explain the narrative, the actual message of the whole Bible. They struggle with that. Or maybe a book. A certain book doesn't make sense to them because they don't know where to place it in redemptive history. They don't know what purposes it has in redemptive history. So biblical theology helps us with that. It also protects us from false narratives, false gospels. It guards the church. Having a good biblical theology will protect the church from false gospels. Who can name a false gospel? Prosperity Prosperity gospel, right? That's on my list. That's the number one on my list, right? The prosperity gospel. So the problem with the prosperity gospel is that they're missing the main point of the scriptures. The main point of the scriptures isn't that God is going to bless me materially, isn't that God is just going to solve all of my medical problems and all of those things, right? Yes, God is our provider. Yes, God is also our healer, right? And Jesus came and he did heal, right? And he did care for people. He did all those things, but he did that to show his glory. He did that to reveal who he was. And the main purpose is not that the miracles were the end of themselves, the problem with the prosperity gospel is the miracles are the end of themselves. That's what we're seeking. We're seeking those things, and we're almost going to God for the benefits he gives us. So it's a false gospel. So biblical theology helps us that when we are reading the Bible, we would filter out those types of thoughts that, that God is just doing these things for the wrong reasons. And so we, we understand the narrative. We understand the purpose. Another false gospel that's become very prominent is the social gospel, is we understand that Jesus didn't come uh, j- just to basically be a social worker, right? He didn't just come to give people a better life situation and things like that, or to undo the ills of social structures. 
though he will one day ultimately put all things in subjection of himself, he will one day right all the wrong social structures, right? And we will be under his kingdom rule, and it will be a wonderful thing. That is not the main purpose of the Bible. Uh, we can look at other false gospels like the liberation gospel, right? Same thing. Jesus, the liberation gospel would be Jesus just comes to free us from all types of worldly oppression. Well, Jesus did come to free us from oppression, the oppression of sin. So not just the oppression of, of social structures or the people in power or things like that. Jesus came to do so much more than that. So understanding the narrative of Scripture guards the church from these dangerous errors. Right? So it's almost like in bowling, it puts up the bumpers so that we don't go right into the gutter with false belief. And so it protects the church as we can understand and establish a good understanding of the Bible and its purpose. It also helps us to, to read, understand, and teach the, the Bible the way Jesus taught us to, the way he said that we should. Uh, it also helps us to counsel ourselves and others. As we understand the redemptive story, we know how to place ourselves in that redemptive story because God has placed us there by his sovereignty. And so we understand who we are in relation to God, who we are in relation to our sin, and we start to understand these things as part of the narrative. And now we can counsel ourselves and we can counsel others, right? Because we understand where they are in their struggles and we can enter into the narrative of the gospel and we can minister the gospel to them better because we understand the narrative. It aids in our evangelism. Because a lot of people struggle when they evangelize. They may know all the, the verses. They may know the Romans road. They may know how to lead people uh, to the cross, right? Starting with certain Bible verses. But they may not know how to administer the narrative to the person. And what I mean by that is, again, entering them into creation, fall, redemption. Understanding that no matter where that person is at, they're somewhere in that storyline. And that as you can enter them into that storyline, it's a lot easier to minister the gospel to people. And then the last reason that I have for biblical theology is that I think obedience. And so what I mean by that is, is Paul tells Timothy to rightly handle the word of God in 2 Timothy. He tells him to rightly handle the word of God. And if we're told to rightly handle the word of God, and Jesus teaches us that all scripture points to him, then we have an obligation to understand and teach the scriptures accordingly. So if Jesus is saying, is everything points to me, is what Jesus is saying, and we teach otherwise, we're being disobedient. And so really, I think teaching biblical theology properly, teaching the Bible properly, is really being obedient to the way that we should understand the scriptures, and the way that Jesus taught the scriptures, and unfolded the scriptures to his disciples. So any questions on, on some of the reasons why we do biblical theology? All right. So the next one I want to look at is how do Jesus and the biblical authors see Scripture? So let's, let's all turn to Luke 24. Luke 24, we'll be starting in verse 25. While you're turning there, I'll just give you a little background. This is after the resurrection. Jesus is walking with two of his disciples on the, the road to Emmaus. And, and they, they, they are not understanding what's going on. We're, I know we're all familiar with this text. So Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. If someone will read that for me.
So what does he call them? Foolish, why? Why are they slow? What was that? If they didn't believe, they didn't understand. Yeah, they didn't understand that the scriptures point to him. So what does Jesus do in verse 27? He explained it to him. How is he interpreting the Old Testament? Because that's what he's interpreting, right? It says that he's interpreting the scriptures. At this point, the scriptures are the Old Testament. So how is he interpreting the Old Testament? He's a fulfillment of it, right? He's saying, he literally is beginning with Moses, Genesis, and all the prophets, and he says he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he takes the Old Testament and he interprets it showing that these things concern him. These things are pointing to him. They're pointing to realities beyond themselves. They're pointing to Christ and his, his work and his person. And so basically from Jesus we're getting an interpretive grid to the Old Testament. We can read the Old Testament now and recognize that the, the Old Testament is pointing to realities beyond itself. A lot of critical scholars would like to think when you read the Old Testament, you need to read it as though you are Jewish and you do not believe in Christ. And there's a lot of problems with that. Because one, Paul will describe the Jews who are missing the point of the Old Testament, saying that they read it as though they have a veil over their eyes. So his whole point is that if you read the Bible like that, you're actually missing the entire point of the Bible. So Paul is actually condemning that sort of practice, that we would read the Bible as though we don't know about Christ. So when you read the Old Testament and you try to do that, it's very unhelpful. You should never do that because Paul tells us not to do that. And Jesus is telling us that these things concern himself. So whenever we read the Old Testament, we should do it as a Christian who knows that these things point to Christ ultimately. And if you do any other interpretation other than that, then you're really doing it on your own because Paul is condemning the Jews for doing that. That's the whole point, that they've missed Christ now and they have a veil over their eyes and they're reading the scriptures as though they're blind and they're doing them no good. So next verse, we'll go to John 5. Turn with me to John 5. Verse 39, if someone wants to read chapter 5, verse 39. I'll give background real quick. Sorry, he's, he's in conflict with the religious leaders. So again, we see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders. They're usually missing the point on something from, again, the Old Testament, these practices or these man-made practices that they've had. So with that as your background, uh, read John 5, verse 39. Thank you. So they're searching the scriptures. They do think that the scriptures lead to eternal life, right? So they believe that. But what does he tell them? What are they witness to? Jesus, right? They witness to Jesus. And so Jesus, again, is saying, you're searching the scriptures. You're getting it all wrong. It leads to me. So again, interpreting the Bible in the sense that it leads to Christ is, is the way we're supposed to look at the Bible, the way we're supposed to look at the text, uh, last thing I want to turn to uh, in this part of our study is Hebrews. Let's turn over to Hebrews. Start in chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Hebrews. We'll deal with Hebrews later in our study. We're going to see uh, 
the author of Hebrews continually points back to the, the covenant, points us forward, or really back to the, the new and better covenant that has been inaugurated in Christ. And so we're going to see a lot of covenantal language in Hebrews that we're going to really uh, look into as we get into the new covenant in our study. But for right now, if someone will read chapter 8, verse 5, he's talking about these, these realities of the law and these, these Old Testament realities of the priesthood, sacrificial system, all those types of things. And what does he say in verse 5 of chapter 8? So they serve as a copy and a shadow. And then we go on. We'll continue in that idea of the shadow in chapter 10. So let's read chapter 10, verse 1. So again, he's talking about the sacrifices, and he's saying that they're a shadow, but he's saying that, that there's, there's a substance that's actually come, that these are a shadow of the good thing. They're not the true form. They're not the true form, right? The, the sacrifices from the Old Testament are a shadow of the true form, which is Christ who has come, the inaugurator of the new and better covenant. And so he's pointing back to the Old Testament, saying these things in the old are a shadow, right? So they do point to Christ. They point to realities that we'll learn in the cross and realities we'll learn in Christ's resurrection and all the truths that we see in his life. And so in some way they point forward, right? And so we can't get caught up in the shadows, right? That, that's almost what, what Paul is saying is, is that the Jews, they're just fixating on the shadows, right? They're fixating on the shadows and ignoring the substance, right? If I were to, to go on a walk with my wife and, the, and she casts a shadow, I'm not going to hold the hand of her shadow. I'm going to hold her hand as we're going for a walk, right? And so that's, that's the reality is that the Jews are, are struggling to, because they're fixating on the shadows, the shadow of the actual substance. They've missed the, the substance, which means they've missed the entire point of the shadows, of the copy, the things that were pointing to things beyond themselves. The greater reality is what they were pointing forward to. I know that many of you have probably heard Brian preach before, especially when he's preaching from the Old Testament and you've probably gone home thinking to yourself, I never thought of the Bible that way. And for a lot of you, that's probably why you love his preaching, especially, like I said, when he preaches the Old Testament. We're going through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel right now, and I'm sure that's happened a lot, that you've been like, wow, I've read 1 and 2 Samuel a couple times before, and I never saw those realities. Because what he's doing is biblical theology. What he's doing is he's taking the Old Testament, and he's pointing to the realities greater than himself. Right? He still interprets the Old Testament. He, he points you to the historical context, understanding that text, and then he shows how it points to realities beyond themselves. And he's doing biblical theology. And honestly, that's probably one of the reasons why you like his preaching, is because he's doing biblical theology as he preaches. And so what we're doing in our studies, hopefully we can kind of like unveil the curtain, in, in a sense, and give you some of those tools that he's using so that you can think more like that, so that... When he's doing that later on, you're going to say, I haven't caught that before, but now I know how a lot easier. Now it makes more sense what Brian's doing when he's preaching. Now I know why when he's preaching about these realities in the Old Testament, he's pointing to realities beyond themselves. 
right? And so, so that's exactly what he does when he preaches. And the more that we can understand our Bibles like that, again, that's more how we're supposed to understand our Bibles. Because again, as I pointed to with Jesus, that's how he's telling us to understand the Bible. And the author of Hebrews is saying to focus on the substance. Look at the shadows and sh- so that they can display the glory of the substance. So the, the next thing I want to talk about is, is some of the tools of biblical theology because it's important that we understand some of those tools so that we can actually do it ourselves. And so the first one that's important in biblical theology, which a lot of this is basic hermeneutics, again, just the study of the Bible, right, the science of interpretation. And so a lot of this is just basic hermeneutics, basic interpretation. Uh, but one thing that's important is literary genre, right? What, what kind of book is this? Is it a narrative? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it law, wisdom, or apocalypse? Why would that matter? Someone give me a reason why literary genre would matter. You got to read in context? Absolutely. What else? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. For a historical narrative? You can take that literally. You can understand it. And, and so, just as Justin was saying, if, if we're in poetry, we can understand that things can be symbolic, that things can be figurative. So we need to understand that. And so we can still see the Bible as an inerrant word of God and not take apocalyptic literature completely, literally, one for one on everything. And so and that, that's, what get, that's why people struggle sometimes with Revelation. That's why people struggle in the Psalms or in the judgment text in the prophets because they're looking at some apocalyptic language or very figural language, poetic language, and they're trying to interpret it under the wrong genre. And so understanding the genre is very important. And again, a book can have multiple genres in it. You can read Jeremiah as we're doing on Sunday nights, and there's poetry in Jeremiah. And, and so, again, there's apocalyptic uh, genre in there. So, like, you see different things within a text, and so you have to understand those things and be sensitive to it. Next one is historical context. The Bible was written in a, in a, in a time that's not our own. It's a much different time than now. And so we do need to enter into the historical context. It's helpful in aiding our biblical theology. Historical context in and of itself is not biblical theology, but it aids in it. So it helps us to understand that era the authors, uh, what's going on, because if we miss those types of things, we're, we could have poor interpretation because we don't understand what's actually happening at that time as the author intended. Uh, same thing, so for an ex- example, let's say you're reading the book of Lamentations and you don't know any of the historical context. Maybe you're even new to the Bible and you start in Lamentations. Well, it, it's going to be kind of shocking to you. It's, it's probably going to make you uncomfortable about your view of God. You don't understand what just happened. Well, the book of Lamentations uh, Jeremiah is lamenting the fact that Israel has been ruined. They've, they've actually had the, the, the full covenantal curses have come down upon Israel. They've been exiled. The, the temple's been destroyed. All these terrible things have happened because of their sin and idolatry. And so Jeremiah is lamenting these things. And so if you go into it not knowing what's going on, you're probably going to be discouraged and not know how to apply the text or understand it. Uh, and so, again, that historical context is, is key to our understanding of the Bible. Uh, The next part that's that's huge in biblical theology is canonical context. How does this verse or this passage or even this book relate to its surrounding context? What are the intentions of the author? Why did they write this book? How does it develop the biblical narrative? Uh, How how does it develop 
Uh, how does it develop these themes throughout the Bible? Are they picking up on themes from previous books and errors in the Bible? And what are they looking forward to? Because you'll see that throughout the Bible. It's not just in the New Testament, right? In the New Testament, we constantly see Matthew say, saying things like, and this fulfilled such and such prophecy. And so we see that throughout the New Testament. Well, the Old Testament authors did that too. You'll see that constantly where they're actually using previous verses. They're, they're looking back on salvation history. They're looking back on the Old Testament. And they're writing about these truths, and that's where you see these patterns start to shape throughout the Old Testament. And so, uh, again, that canonical context of, of reading the scriptures, looking at those themes that carry across uh, throughout redemptive history. And that's why you hear this term quite often, allowing scripture to interpret scripture. Is there a clearer text that sheds light on these realities? Is there a text that, that shows the fulfillment of this? And so how does this theme build throughout the Bible? And so you can, you can follow a theme, and you can just follow it throughout the Bible, throughout that canonical context. And there's, there's tons of themes. That's one thing with biblical theology is you can go in a lot of different directions. You, you can study themes. Uh, you can pick up the seed and just carry the theme, or even just scepter, and carry that throughout, throughout Scripture. And you start to see these themes form around these things, or atonement the lamb, and you could just take that theme and carry it throughout Scripture, throughout the books of the Bible, watch it develop, and then fulfill in Christ. And so again, that goes back to that canonical context. Another key tool of biblical theology is literary devices. So things like repetition, the use of language, uh, use of themes, imagery, symbolism, all those types of things are very important to understanding your Bibles and biblical theology. You start to see into the author's world. So, for instance, Mark, he says immediately, all throughout the Scripture. You see him say immediately. It's, it's this fast-paced gospel uh, that, that Mark is giving us. Why does he do that? Right? Why does he do that, but John doesn't do that? And so, starting to look at things like that and asking why. What is he trying to do with that literary device? Why does he have such repetition? Or Ezekiel, over 50 times he says, And you shall know that I am the Lord God throughout the book. Throughout the book, he says that over 50 times. And so clearly, he's trying to teach us something. Clearly, he's trying to show us something about God and something that Israel is missing and the nations are missing. And so again, this repetition or use of language in Numbers, when Balaam and Balak, they're arguing back and forth about his inability to, to produce a, a negative prophecy over Israel uh, in order to curse them. Uh, and so they're fighting back and forth, and Balak is upset because he's, praying, he's paying Balaam to give this, this terrible prophecy over Israel, and the Lord is causing him to bless Israel. And so as he's doing that, uh, Moses intentionally causes his language to be sloppy, and he starts dropping off some of the vowels and things like that in Hebrew, and he's doing that for a reason, right? Why does Moses do that? Well, he, he's showing like the anger, the utter anger that Bala, Balak has. And so again, these types of things, they key us in as we're reading. They're, they're little nuanced things that you may not notice, but as you start seeing what the author is doing, they're doing creative things to show a, a particular purpose, and that's exactly what Moses is doing there. He's, making that, he's trying to make that as clear as possible, this, this anger that Balak has. You'll see imagery throughout the Bible. So again, things like Jesus as a branch or as a tree. Well, we can't take that literally. Jesus isn't literally a branch. So how is he a branch? How do we trace that theme throughout biblical theology? What is Isaiah saying about him being a branch? How does Zechariah also add to that idea of him being a branch? And so you can trace these themes throughout the Bible and watch them build and fulfill in Christ. And then also what a lot of the biblical authors do, and you'll see even Moses do this, it's not just the New Testament writers, uh, but they'll repeat exact phrases but apply it to a new situation. 
And so you'll see things where Adam, in many ways, seems like Noah. And you'll see these connecting points where maybe Noah is a type of Adam. And we'll, we'll talk about this. Like, why is Moses using identical language describing the two people? Is it because he's not intelligent enough to come up with new ideas? Or is he serving a purpose with it? Is he pointing to, again, realities beyond themselves, but yet these, these things are really happening in historical time, and it points to God's sovereignty in this, that, they, that God is causing history to unfold the way that he desires for it to unfold. Uh, the last tool I want to talk about is typology. Uh, typology is another tool that, that's very key to biblical theology, and it's a tool used to analyze patterns in Scripture. So some of these things I've been talking about, these patterns in Scripture, uh, I described Adam uh, as a type of Noah, Noah type of Adam. And so there's, there's two things that are key to typology. One is historical correspondence. So it has to do with the way real people, events, or institutions match each other. So again, in the Bible, people, events, and institutions will often match each other. And so what I mean by that is, is, as I said, Noah and Adam, and then Jesus and Adam. Paul will refer back to that as that Jesus is actually a type of Adam. And so how does the Bible develop that? Uh, and so same thing, people, and then you have events. How are events have correspondence? There's an event that happens in the Old Testament, and then the New Testament looks back on it and then points to Christ with it, or an institution, like the Passover, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Well, how does that theme develop throughout the Bible? And so, again, typology uh, helps us to see these patterns, to make these connections, and then to understand these realities better. And again, it only leaves us in awe of God and what he's done in the process of redemptive history as he's caused these things to match up in such a glorious way. Uh, it, it only shows that only God could be the author of Scripture. Because for these authors to, to line these things up so consistently and to have such a consistent message and to have these things like typology and symbolism uh, and imagery and all these beautiful things that, that go throughout the Scriptures is it really shows God's, God's superintending these things to happen throughout history, his sovereignty. And so again, like I said in Romans 5.14, uh, Paul says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So some people don't like typology, um, but the biblical authors actually use the term typology, and you watch them doing it. And so uh, the translation in the ESV is type. It comes from two posts, and we see it also in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, he's basically drawing application from Israel in the wilderness, and he says these things took place as examples. Uh, a lot of translations will translate it types, which is actually the, the proper translation. Um, but basically, Paul's saying these things happened as types. They happened as things pointing to something beyond themselves. They're, they're, they happened to teach greater realities than even they knew at that time. And, and so, uh, again, and typology isn't arbitrary. I think that's a lot of people's understanding of typology is that you read the Bible and you come up with these, these allegorical interpretations, these kind of fanciful interpretations. Uh, one, one famous one that whenever they talk about typology, it always comes up is Rahab with, with the scarlet cord. Is, is that representing the blood of Christ? Well, if you're kind of looking at typology and how there's correspondence and things like that, we don't see really any correspondence. We don't see the biblical authors trying to develop that theme or do anything with it. 
could it possibly represent that? Yeah, maybe, but if to call that a type may be a, an unhelpful thing to do because now we're kind of arbitrarily coming up with types. And that's what a lot of people do with typology, which is why a lot of people don't like it because people just come up with random things and say, well, this represents this. And, and typology is rooted in the text. It's rooted in what the authors are intending to do, that authorial intent. And so outside of that, you're just coming up with fanciful interpretations. So be careful with that. Um, but you'll start to see in, in the study, I'm going to try and highlight some of those, those things that God has, has, has like f- allowed the author to think typologically. And so that's exactly what the author's doing. So we will talk about that throughout our study uh, as we're, we're going through that. And we see, for instance, like David. David's a type of Jesus, and, and we've been seeing Brian teach in that type of manner, and we're going, to see, uh, we're going to see the Davidic covenant coming up soon. Brian's going to be teaching on that. And so we're going to see some of those kingdom realities uh, of, of how, how what God is doing through David, through his line, ultimately leading up to Christ. Uh, and, and so David is a type of Christ. We'll see that in the Davidic covenant. Uh, and all this, again, just points to God's sovereignty throughout history, throughout redemptive history. So how are we going to do biblical theology? That's the, its definition is something that usually confuses people. And the second thing is how do we now do biblical theology? That's the second part that usually confuses people. Because there's a lot of ways we can look at biblical theology. Uh, you can, like I said, you can trace themes throughout Scripture. We could look at something like creation, fall, and redemption. And just trace those themes throughout Scripture. And that's a, that's a great way of looking at biblical theology. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we can look at kingdom of God. And we can just trace out God establishing his kingdom reign and rule. And we could just trace that throughout the Bible. Um, but as I was thinking about how we're going to go through our study, uh, I, I wanted to structure it in a manner, how does the Bible present itself? Uh, and, and what would be a helpful way to structure Basically, this is an introduction. We're going to have five weeks of navigating the entire Bible. So what's the best way to do that? And I think that the covenantal structure of the Bible is, is the best way to do it. And so uh, we could look at some other ways, but this is the way we're going to do it through this study. Because I think that the Bible presents itself as, as such a framework. That the covenants are key to understanding the scriptures. That if you can understand the covenants and you can understand the, the basic progression of the covenants, you can pretty much piece in the rest of the, the books of the Bible and where they are in relation to the covenants and how they, they lead up to Christ and the fulfillment of the new covenant. So as, as we do this, I hope that it will kind of give you that helpful framework, uh, that backbone of scripture, so that you can really understand how to place the scriptures and understanding that, that grand narrative of scripture and so I, I think that it is very helpful to us as we look at these things. Uh, and I think Jesus, again, as I talked about kind of the way Jesus interpreted the Bible, I think Jesus thinks covenantally too, because what does he do at the Passover? He points back to the Old Testament. He points back to the Exodus realities uh, of them being saved in the Exodus. Uh, he points back to the atonement, to the Passover lamb, and all of those Old Covenant truths and that sacrificial system, and then he, what does he do? He says, this is the new covenant, right? This is, he's fulfilling the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, the new covenant pointed forward by Ezekiel. And so he's, he's thinking covenantally, in a sense, right? It's the means by which God chose to establish relationship with man. And so we see, we'll see that as we go through our study with Abraham, Moses, Noah, David. We'll see that, that God chose to establish his relationship with man through these covenants. That he chose to covenant with man to dwell among us. Uh, and, and it's the manner by which he chose to, to come to, to ultimately save us through Christ. And, and again, Christ thinks covenantally. So that's how we're going to structure our study. So what we're going to do is, is in these five weeks we'll go from, from creation. So we'll look at creation to Noah. And then we'll, we'll look at the covenant 
God made with Abraham, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and then ultimately the New Covenant. And so as we're doing that, I'm going to show the progression. My desire is to hopefully highlight and show the progression of the covenants, that they build upon one another. And that, again, the authors, as even Moses is, is talking about the Mosaic Covenant, he's writing about it. He's looking back at the Abrahamic Covenant. He's looking back at these realities uh, that have preceded him, seeing that there's continuity in the Bible. There's continuity in God's redemptive history and in his redemptive purposes. This isn't just some disjointed thing where God had to come in with plan B and he's just keeps doing an audible along the way you're going to start to see the continuity of the scripture hopefully throughout this study and so that's my goal in the next five weeks does anyone have any questions all right well let's pray and we'll close father we thank you for the beauty of your word we thank you for redemptive history, Lord, that you did choose to covenant with man, Lord, that you chose to send your son to establish the new covenant so that we could be made new, Lord, so that you could save us from our sins because of his great work on the cross, Lord. And as we study the Bible in these coming weeks, Lord, we pray that you would unfold your scriptures in the manner that the Bible does, in the manner that the biblical authors unfolded the scriptures, and I pray that it would be helpful to the church here at Fisherville, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.